So I'm reading from Colossians 2, verses 6 to 23. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in the false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and the harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. There ends the reading. Okay. Um, let us come before our Lord in a time of prayer now. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we thank you uh, for this time as your people. We thank you for... Uh, giving us your word, which has just been read. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to understand it uh, and respond to you the right way, to respond in faith and love for you. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it feels a little bit uh, strange to be uh, preaching here in our church building, which is virtually empty, because most of you are at home doing the right thing, the best thing at this time and having some uh, physical distancing. It's not social distancing because we're, we're connected, but there's a bit of physical distancing and that's the good thing to do at this time. 
But I'm very glad that we've got uh, technology. It's good when it works and it's good that it can connect us together uh, so that we can focus this morning for a time on God's word and be encouraged. And we need encouragement, don't we? Uh, this is a time of hardship. There's nothing surprising about that. It's a, it's a difficult time for a lot of people. But this morning, God's word reminds us of hope. It reminds us of the hope that we have in Jesus. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Colossae. He understood that they needed some encouragement to have some hope in Jesus as well because they were having their hope undermined by some people who were teaching the wrong things and so they needed to be uh, encouraged once again. Uh, they needed to see once again what they had in Christ and they needed to understand that they weren't lacking because they had Jesus as Lord. And we need that kind of encouragement too, don't we? The false teachers at Paul's time at Colossae were promoting some things which made the Christians there feel inadequate about uh, their relationship with God. Now, I don't know how you felt um, at times in your Christian life, whether you've ever been made to feel inadequate about uh, the faith that you have in Jesus and, and that it's maybe it's not enough. But I've had several several moments like that in my life where I think others have tried to make me feel a little bit inadequate for being a, a simple Bible-believing Christian. And so there's times when I felt shamed for not speaking in tongues, looked down upon uh, for not having that kind of experience. And the person who was telling me that let me know that uh, because I didn't have that experience, I'd lacked fullness as a Christian, I'd lacked fullness of the Spirit. And they said that it was something that I needed to have. The implication was that I wasn't complete. I've been told that my experience at church was uh, too substandard because the music there uh, wasn't as good as it was at their church. And so my experience as a Christian at church was also inadequate. And others have filled me in at times on visions that they've seen. Even here in Port Macquarie they said there was a a vision of an angel that they had on top of a church building. And of course, I was asked, had I had any visions like that? Well, you know, I guess uh, we knew who was the hero in that story, don't we? It certainly uh, wasn't me. It probably wasn't even Jesus. And others have let me know that there's been times when I wouldn't understand things that they've understood because they've had a different kind of experience of the Spirit than I've had. They've had a better experience of the Spirit. And so on each of those occasions, I think I was made to feel a little bit looked down upon as a Christian. It seemed that being a simple Bible-believing Christian just wasn't enough for those kinds of people. I couldn't, couldn't compete with them uh, with their experiences because they were spiritual world beaters and I was a spiritual loser. But were they right? Did I need something else to be complete as a Christian? And did the people whom Paul originally wrote this letter, did they need something else to be complete and enjoy fullness with God as well? 
And what about you? Do you need something other than your faith in Jesus to be complete as a Christian? Well, Paul writes this letter because he wants them to continue the way they began with their faith in Christ. He wants them to keep their focus on Jesus and not to be moved away from that. And his first point is that Jesus ought to be central and remain central in their lives. We see this if you follow on in your, in your Bibles now. If you've gone and got that from your, your bookshelf, pick it up in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. Paul writes, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Now, it seems that Paul hadn't met this congregation face-to-face, but Epaphras had taken the good news about Jesus, that Jesus was Lord and Saviour, and he brought it to this uh, little town of Colossae. He passed on a tradition to them, uh, and the tradition was that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that's what they've received. And instead of um, having them move on to some other mystical experience to enjoy a, a relationship with God... Paul challenges this church and he challenges us, doesn't he, to continue the same way that we began. Paul uses some good language to describe uh, how it is that we are to continue. And so the first imagery is uh, taken from horticulture. Uh, he says, rooted, rooted in him. Now, the, here's the idea that uh, the seed of the gospel uh, was passed on to them. And they're to put down deep roots into Christ. It's, it's the idea of a, a tree that's got deep roots down and it's standing firm. It's not, it's not being moved. That's how they're to continue to, to keep their roots in Christ. Built up in him gives us the image of, um, of a building and things being built on the right foundation, brick by brick, uh, continuing to be built up in Christ, building on the right foundation which is Jesus Christ alone. That's how Paul's encouraging these people to move forward, to, to, to be built on Christ. And they're to be strengthened in the faith, as they were taught, which refers to the original faith that they've received, uh, not, not to discard that, but to reinforce that. They're not to take on new weird ideas. They're to understand that what they were taught originally was really worthwhile. It was gold. And finally, they were to continue with a good attitude, overflowing with thankfulness for what God had done for them in Christ and not to diminish uh, God's generosity to them in that. In sum, these Christians back in Colossae were to continue the way they started. They were to stand firm with their knowledge of Jesus as Lord and Saviour they were to walk in him. That's what the original says. I had to summarise this um, part of the Bible uh, for one of my sons, actually, when he asked me, what's, what's this all about? And so I'll put in some uh, different terms. He's saying, Paul's saying, in summary, it's not cool to throw away what you began with. That's not cool. That would be a blunder. In soccer terms, it would be like scoring an own goal. So this is uh, the essence of what he's saying. You've got to hang on to what you've got. Don't, don't throw it away. 
Now, during difficult times like the ones we're experiencing right now, I've noticed that uh, there's a number of people, uh, probably myself included actually, who are getting a bit anxious and anxious about the future. People get frightened. They get, they get scared by uncertainty and how things may play out. And at this time, some people might even be tempted to doubt the goodness of God and, and God's control over the world. And so even during these difficult times when, when people get worried, when they get frightened, when they get scared, uh, they might start to be tempted to throw away their faith in Jesus and be tempted to put their faith in something else. People might be tempted to drift away from Christ and we might even be tempted to drift away from each other. But if we drift away or some drift away from, from Christ, what are they drifting towards? Well, others might be putting their hope in other things like their hope in the stars and astrology. Some might be drifting towards uh, meditation, the power of positive thinking. People might feel the temptation to drift away from their hope in Christ and put their hope in other things. But the word this morning is not a call to do that. The word this morning is a call to continue to live our lives in Christ, to walk in Him. And this is not the time to be uh, going backwards and wasting away. This is the time to be continuing and growing in our dependence on, on God. This is the time to be uh, enjoying the fact that we can pray to God during a time of struggle. Now it's the time for us to be strengthened in the faith that we received in God's word. And it's the time to be grateful to God for life that we have with him through Christ. Because this letter's reminded us that that's what we've got. We've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. In chapter 1, verse 20, 21 and 22, Paul reminds us that uh, we're no longer God's enemies. Isn't that a relief? But through the work of Jesus, we've been reconciled to God. Isn't it wonderful to be reconciled to people? And it's wonderful, above all, to be reconciled to God. And so the word this morning is a call for both you and I to continue the way that we began, continue with our faith in Jesus, not moved from the hope that we have in him. Jesus must remain central in our lives. In chapter 2, Paul reminds us that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he's very frank in letting him know why he's, he's even telling him these things. We see that in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. The risk is that people will get deceived. If they hear uh, some bamboozling argument, someone's dazzling them with their brilliance of their wisdom, they might get deceived. And so Paul's saying, I'm writing these things so you don't get deceived. And he picks up on that theme today in, in our passage in verse 8. He doesn't want them to be led away from Jesus because Jesus is significant. And so he says in verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world 
rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity, of the deity, lives in bodily form. Well, what is the threat here? What is the risk? Uh, what is it that Paul's warning them about? Well, the risk is that people are going to be taken captive, not kidnapped. He's not worried about them capturing them and dragging them away. He's talking about them having their minds captured. They'll, they'll buy into some of what these false teachers are promoting, this error. And he uses a word which is uh, taken from warfare, which is about being carried off as booty. That's what's going to happen to their mind. They're going to be taken away in their minds. Well, there seems to be some kind of false teaching that sounds good. I was going to say it promises much, but it delivers little. But you know what? It doesn't even deliver little. It turns out to be hollow and worthless. It's centred on human tradition. And it's caught up with the basic principles of this world. This word is, uh, could be variously interpreted, but it, it's also referred in other translations to the elemental spirits of the cosmos or the universe. And it's likely to be a, a reference to some of the astral powers and some of the uh, worship of sun, moon and stars and the, and the gods that are attributed to those things. But we see in verse 10 that Jesus is ruler over all rule and authority. He's the head over those things. And so we get some hints about the error that's uh, confronting these people in the early church. It has to do with Sabbath in 2.16, circumcision in 2 verse 11, and food laws. And so it seems to have a, a Jewish heritage. But there's other worldly beings that Paul refers to as well. If you see there in chapter 2 verse 18, the activity of angels... 2 verse 10 and 2.15, powers and authorities, and chapter 3 verse 2, things above. So there's, there's a mysticism that's got a, a Jewish heritage, but it seems to be dealing with other spiritual forces of evil. Well, that mysticism is being promoted, was being promoted in Colossae, but it's a, it's a movement away from Christ and what he's done to bring us to God. Some might have been interested in that kind of spirituality which moved away from the gospel of salvation that was founded upon Jesus and his work. But Paul's bringing this church back to Jesus and reminds them that Jesus is supreme. He's in authority over all things. We see that in verse 8. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Jesus was in very nature of God, but took on flesh when he came and entered the world to bring salvation. As we come to know Jesus, we come to know God. And Paul wants those Colossians, and he wants people like us, to understand the significance of our Christian experience if we know Christ. He wants us to understand that we have completeness or fullness in Christ. That's what we see in 2 verse 10 to 15. In verse 10, he says, You have been given fullness in Christ, who's the head of every ruler and authority. We've got fullness in Christ because we're united to Jesus through faith, and it's through him that we enjoy a living relationship with God. In verse 11, we read, In him you were also circumcised 
with the circumcision done by Christ, or it could be translated the circumcision of Christ. Well, this is linked also with dying and rising with Christ in baptism. Uh, the translation of these verses is somewhat tricky. But Paul's saying that we're identifying with Christ not in a, a physical circumcision way. It's a circumcision of the heart. And this is referring back to Deuteronomy about people having their hearts uh, changed, if you like. These people, these Colossians, they've been converted. Uh, they've been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of God's Son. They've had a change of heart and they've, they're now identifying with Christ. And it depends how we interpret uh, the circumcision of Christ. That could be either metaphorically Jesus is doing the circumcision or it could be a reference to uh, how he put off his body of flesh in death. It's a, it's a bit of a gross image at one level, but Paul's saying that we're, we're caught up in Jesus' death for us what he's done for us in shedding his body uh, benefits us. We're identifying with Christ in his death. And we do so also in baptism as we go down in the waters of baptism and are raised. We're identifying with Jesus as he dies and rises again. The false teachers might have been promoting uh, the practice of circumcision, but we're identifying with Jesus in his death and resurrection for us. That's what we see in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Christians are united to Jesus in his death for us. We benefit from the work of Christ, don't we, to enjoy life with God. And that's what we see in verses 13 to 15. Paul casts their minds back to earlier days when they were dead in their sins, but God made the difference to them, for he made them alive with Christ. They were spiritually dead. They were cut off from life with God. They were enemies of God, but God's made them alive with Christ. Paul describes their Christian experience in verse 13 as having sins forgiven. And he uses the language of cancelling a debt. This... Uh, this written code is it's like an IOU. In verse 14, sorry, I'll, I'll go back to this point. Um, they've also enjoying the, the triumph over evil. They don't have to feel frightened of evil. Uh, the spiritual powers have been defeated in Christ. That's what we see in verse 14. Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We're united to Jesus in his death for us. And Jesus cancels our debt of sin. This, this uh, written code is the, uh, the Cairo, the hand word, and the, the grapho word, the, the, written, the handwritten and it's, uh, it's like a reference to a type of IOU. At, uh, at my place, uh, the kids do jobs for me. And uh, I just say, well, just put up the tote on the fridge. There's an IOU that I owe the kids. It'd be like the kids cancelling that, that IOU. Well, 
I feel good about that. But this is a this is a more important one. This is our debt. This is our sin against God, and that that debt, that debt of sin to God, it's it's been cancelled, nailed to the cross. Isn't that a relief? In fact, that's also what Jesus has done on the cross. Is it's got other benefits as well. Uh, it's got the benefits of defeating otherworldly powers and authorities that would accuse us, perhaps make us feel guilty for our sin and frightened. Well, the message is that we don't have to feel guilt for our sin anymore because of what Jesus has done for us. We don't have to be scared of the accuser because Jesus has dealt with our sin and and made us alive with God. We enjoy a living relationship with God. It comes through Christ. And so we don't need to engage in any superstitious activities. We don't need to try to ward off the threat of evil spirits in our lives. We don't need to be frightened of a dimension of evil because Jesus has triumphed over evil and he's given us forgiveness. We've been made alive with God and because of that we don't need to feel inadequate as God's people. In verse 10 we're reminded that we've been given fullness in Christ. And so Paul would now like to strengthen that church in the face of people who would want to judge them and shame them for having just a simple faith in Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. He wants to strengthen the church in the face of those who want to take them captive to a hollow and deceptive philosophy, those who try to make them feel inadequate as Christians. We pick this up in uh, chapter 2, verse 16 where the Colossians are being tempted to move from Christ and have pressure to become complete in other ways. And so Paul responds in verse 16 to assure them in the face of that pressure. Let's pick it up in verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however is found in Christ. Jewish practices seem to be emphasised as an attempted pathway to a deeper spirituality. But in the end, it just leads to a new kind of legalism that's invented. It starts to deny the sufficiency of what Jesus has already done for us to be reconciled to God. Some of these people were excited by philosophy They might have uh, understood uh, some of what Plato had written uh, about uh, reality and the shadows of reality. And uh, Paul's really uh, putting them in their place when he says, look, they're focused not on the reality, they're they're only focused on the shadow. These things are only a shadow of, of a greater reality. And he starts to note some other aspects of their practice which are in error. We'll pick it up in verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles or the 
elemental spirits of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they're based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. There seem to be people who were judging the Christians at Colossae, but they were making a new criteria for spirituality, one that was a movement away from the completeness that's found in Christ. What exactly was the problem the Colossians faced? Well, as we've noted, there was a Jewish dimension to it with regard to the circumcision, the food and drink regulations, religious festivals, new moon celebrations and the Sabbath. So there's a, a Jewish kind of uh, origin to some of this error. But there's also a mystical dimension that's expressed uh, by the business regarding the worship of angels, which is probably not the idolatry of worshipping angels. That would, would have been called out more as, as a, a clear error. But perhaps this, this is about people... Uh, seeing visions of God's heavenly court with angels worshipping God. And some of them are involved in some weird practices as well, this harsh treatment of the body there, they're somehow uh, thrashing themselves or doing something, getting involved in some form of asceticism, uh, possibly preparing themselves for some kind of mystical experience, a trance or some kind of uh, attempted heavenly ascent to see angels worshipping God and uh, there's some evidence <coughs> historically uh, for, for some Jewish communities uh, to be uh, thinking about some of those things. We're, we're familiar with parts of the Bible that talk about God being seated in a court attended to by, by angels. We see that in Isaiah chapter 6, 1 to 3. Uh, the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted the train of his robe filled the temple and above him were angels, seraphs. In uh, Daniel chapter 7, uh, the Ancient of Days takes his seat in, the, in a court setting. Thousands upon thousands attended him. And another ancient document reveals aspects of this kind of situation. Um, 1 Enoch chapter 14, 8 to 23, uh, Enoch describes his upward flight to the dwelling place of God which is described as the great glory seated on the chariot throne, a, a movable throne and attended to by angels. And there are some other uh, documents from the Dead Sea Scrolls which have songs invoking angelic worship and some sort of mystical visions recalling the appearance and movements of the divine throne chariot uh, to the heavenly temple. So there's, there's um, historical documents that some mystical elements of uh, some uh, Jewish teaching talk about uh, viewing God in his heavenly court. And it seems that uh, we get the picture that some people at Paul's time might have been trying to engage in ascetic practices, harsh treatment of the body in attempts to have perhaps one of these visions but at this point in time, we've got to say, you know, what's that got to do with the price of, you know, 
tea in China? You know, what's this got to do with anything? Uh, Paul's saying, this stuff is a dud. It'll lead you up the garden path, but it's not the way to life with God. Now, we might not live in a world where we're even tempted to feel spiritually inferior because we haven't had a, a, some kind of trance or heavenly ascent where we watch it angels worshipping the Lord but at times we may still be tempted to have other experiences to have fullness in Christ every year it seems that I find myself challenged by some people who would profess to be Christians to have more or to get a new experience of the spirit and you might have found yourself being sold ideas like that as well. That you need something in addition to Christ to be a full Christian, a complete Christian. Some people like to promote a theology of the new. You know, I know my wife likes new chocolate bars and things like that and gets excited about it. But some people get excited about a theology of the new. You know, back in the 80s, speaking in tongues was all the rage. In the 1990s, the, the Toronto Blessing had people falling over and cacking themselves with laughter. And then people joked about hitting, being hit by a flying wok, a word of knowledge. There was a word of knowledge movement which seemed to sweep Christendom of sorts. And then I've seen marketing which talks about Christian leaders being those who uh, walk in a powerful anointing, as if... They're the only ones who've been given the Holy Spirit and that's foreign to, for other Christians. Well, I don't care for any of those other experiences that are in addition to the gospel. They only undermine what we have with our faith in Jesus. And they establish a new legalism as the pathway to enjoy life with God. They can keep their experiences in addition to faith in Christ. I'm just taking what God's word says and building my life on that. But super spiritual elitism isn't new, is it? It's still around today, but it's there back in Paul's time as well. It's still a moving away from the completeness that we enjoy together in Christ. And Paul rebukes those who want to head down a pathway of super-spiritual elitism. In chapter 2, verse 18 and 19, he says, Such a person goes into great detail about what he's seen, and his own spiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Where's this taken him? Well, it's taken him away. He says in verse 19, he's lost connection with the head. He's lost the plot. He's lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. A pathway to super spiritual elitism by some other way, apart from a living faith in Christ, is just a new legalism. It diminishes what we already enjoy in Christ. 
And so the challenge from God's word today is to stay connected to Jesus. Paul's reminding us today to conserve what we began with when we began as Christians. Do you have Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? Have you experienced the forgiveness of your sins by trusting in his death and the resurrection for you? Well, if the answer to those questions is yes, well, the good news is you've, you're complete in Christ. You've got fullness in Christ. Your IOU of sins against God has been forgiven. It's been nailed to the cross. You don't need to fear guilt anymore and you don't need to be frightened of those who'd accuse you. In fact, we can, even in this time of, uh, of complicated world events, uh, we can still enjoy the fact that we have a living relationship with God both now and even into the future when we die. We can enjoy the fact that through Christ we are reconciled to God. We enjoy a living relationship with him. And the encouragement from the passage this morning is not for us to be moved from our hope in Christ. I'm going to close now and lead us in a word of prayer. Let us pray. And Lord God, we give you thanks for uh, Jesus and what he's done for us. We give you thanks that we've uh, been made alive with Christ, uh, that we've had our debt of sin against you forgiven through Jesus bearing our sins on the cross in our place. Lord, we thank you that we're reconciled to you and we can enjoy a living relationship with you. We thank you that you care for us and that you guide us in life. Lord, we thank you for the sufficiency of Jesus and what he's done for us, that we don't need to look for any other new experience to enjoy life with you. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to continue in Christ, to walk in him. Help us to continue to be rooted into Jesus and built up, strengthened in the faith that we've received as Jesus Christ as Lord, and to be grateful for your generosity to us in Christ. Lord, thank you for your word today and the encouragement that it has to us. And we pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.